Hey, welcome back to the podcast. This is Jonathan Edwards, and I'm so thankful that you're with me today. What a great day it is for a podcast, right? And we're in the middle of a series, a mini-series, on the book of Haggai with Brother Bryce Whitaker, a great young man of faith with whom I had the privilege to study with this book of Haggai when he came into studio a couple of months ago. Now, we're in the middle of this study, and so if you haven't listened to episode one, I want to encourage you to go back, find it in the podcast library, and listen to that one first, and then come back here and jump into the conversation with the rest of us. So, if you've done that already and you're ready to go, then let's begin part two in the book of Haggai. Let me uh, pause here and kind of go over what we've talked about so far. Uh, we're talking about Haggai, and it's in the Old Testament. It's two chapters. You can read it in five minutes, you think, if you were to casually read through. And uh, so you, you've, you've tried to encourage us about um, New Testament followers can find uh, lessons to be learned. We, we considered Romans 15 and 1 Corinthians 10. You gave us a historical background. Uh, especially with Ezra and the, the connections of that book. And so we've got to this, as we continue in chapter 1, we see that God's people uh, are discouraged because they couldn't build their temple at first, but then procrastination and priorities were two big problems that continued their lack of building the temple. So they really put emphasis on their own lives and not on God. And that leads us to the second part, of uh, this study, so to speak, and that is um, in verse 6 through 11, where you talk about signs. So take it away. Yeah, so in these verses, Haggai explains the signs that God had given these people to indicate that they weren't serving him the way that they should. I'll go ahead and read a couple of these verses. Uh, Starting in verse 6, it says, You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what does that mean? <laughs> so these things that, that Haggai says happen to these people are basically straight off the list of curses for covenant disobedience that Moses gave the people in Deuteronomy 28. Oh, okay. okay. And so Moses had told the, had told the, the original group of Israelites that when they as a nation broke their covenant with God, those bad things were going to happen. Right. And so now since these people, still Israelites, but just generations later, they're not following God. They're being hit with this famine and drought and poverty. It's amazing how people think that these, uh, you know, t- generation after generation of the Israelites forgot about Deuteronomy 28, and they endured the consequences of it. And you think that that would teach them, but it just it's almost like they... they they couldn't remember it. And I really like this masterful observation you make. Tell us about what they were looking to do 
but really what happened to them because they didn't obey God. So these people were looking to escape poverty by neglecting the temple work and keeping everything for themselves. But God brought them poverty because they weren't working. Mm-hmm. You know, they were looking for that physical fruit while God wanted them to grow spiritual. I think there's a great connection to Matthew 6 where we're not supposed to worry about the day, but let the day worry about itself and that God is going to provide. And and when I was in Cambodia, scriptures like that were challenging for former Buddhists because when they read it, it was like, okay, so I don't do anything and God is going to like miraculously give me stuff. And that's not what that scripture is teaching. I think Haggai kind of helps explain Matthew 6 because they had to get busy working and that God's blessings would come to them in a physical form, not just like sit around and wait for a handout, right? Yeah. So even though we might be making a connection to Matthew 6 and and what this is teaching, you also point out what it's not teaching. And so I think that would be helpful for our listeners. Yeah, these passages are talking about bad things happening as a result of not following God. But this is specifically an Old Testament kind of principle. Okay. So this passage does not mean that every time something bad happens, God is angry or we've done something wrong. Right. In the old law, God told his people that when they as a nation disobeyed, there'd be physical consequences. We mentioned Deuteronomy 28 with Moses' warnings of the curses of disobedience. And we talked about the prophets who told Judah that if they didn't repent, they'd be conquered. And so not every bad thing is a direct consequence of someone messing up. Now, there's New Testament connection to that because they still have that problem, right? Like in John 9, tell us about that, how even though Jesus was around, people were still curious who messed up because of this physical thing that happened to them. Yeah, definitely. This was still an issue that that was pretty big in Jesus' day, that a Uh lot of people thought that when someone was going through something, it was was because they had sinned. You know, looking at John 9, Jesus and his disciples are, are walking by a blind man and His disciples ask him, Master, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus' answer is that neither sinned, but he was blind so that God could work through him. You know, most Eastern religions, the one I'm familiar with is Buddhism, but Hinduism as well, many of them have the idea of karma, and that is this cosmic sense of justice for what happens that you've done will be repaid. And so if you are in this life born with a malady if you're born uh you know blind or if you you can't walk or something it's obviously that you did something wrong in the previous life and it's amazing how that bleeds into christian thought obviously it bled into the thought of the jewish people in john 9 but even today yeah there's people that think that a bad day is the sign that god is unpleased with them and they're not able to accept that sometimes because everyone is a free moral agent someone can do something to you without being that agent of god that that could just be a person that has treated you poorly what would in your opinion what would be some consequences of thinking that every bad thing that happens is a curse from god i think a big part of that is that puts things on God's resume, so to speak, that he hasn't done or that isn't responsible for. And I think it can lead you to a kind of a bad mental place. You know, we look at Job, talk, you talked about having a bad day. 
Job had about the worst day <laughs> of all time. Yes. And, uh, you know, Job's whole case was he was defending himself against his his buddies who were about the most helpful people ever, about as helpful as a screen door on a submarine, as my dad would say. <laughs> and, you know, they're accusing him. That is a um, dad thing. Yeah. They're, they're telling Job, they're like, Job, all of this is happening. You have to have done something wrong. Mm-hmm. And he's just telling them, he's pleading his his righteous case. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it can... if. If every time something bad happens, we think we've messed up somewhere, we're going to be paranoid all the time because, you know, life happens and bad things do happen. Let's take it the opposite. Uh, What's the blessings or the benefit of appreciating that you can have joy and comfort even when bad things happen? I think you just summed up the Christian perspective. You know, I'm going to talk about this a little later, but we can go through trials and hard times um, and come out come out on the other side closer with God. And, you know, we get through it because we know that they're not going to last forever. Mm. That We have a perspective beyond this life. I, I just saw a video is kind of a motivational video the other day and someone had a super long rope in their hand and the very little end of it was a little red strip. And then the rest of the 20 foot rope was all a different color. And he pointed out that this little red strip, that's your life here. And the rest of this long eternal rope is what we have after this. Mm-hmm. And so we, as Christians, we're supposed to focus on the rest of that rope, not the little bit that's that's here for us today. Yeah. Well, that goes back to the the people in Haggai's time and their misplaced priorities, right? They Absolutely. were so focused on that little bitty piece of the rope instead of the eternity. He's trying to have them consider their ways. Well, we need to get back into the narrative. Um, you'll find that when you are on this program that it's quite frequent that we do tiptoe through the tulips of of various questions i love it uh if we're to jump back in the narrative i think we're are we starting chapter two yet we're on chapter one verse 12 yeah right not quite chapter two, almost there but we're we are transitioning in in what's happening because now we're going to get to their response right so how do they respond to god's call for them to consider their ways and god's uh admonition that that you may be trying to escape by taking care of yourselves, but you're actually inflicting punishment from Deuteronomy 28. Do they respond by stiffening their necks or do they repent? Well, let's read verses 12 through 14. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord their God. Mm -hmm. These people didn't give up. They got back to work. Yes, they had failed in the past. And yes, they had wasted time, but they didn't let that hold them back. When they were confronted to the sin of neglecting the temple, they got to work to fix it, and God was with them every step of the way. I like that. I like that uh, instead of coming up with excuses, they just got to work. And so sometimes today uh, I talk to people who feel very overwhelmed about life, like this is going wrong and this is going wrong and this is going wrong, and they feel like the the burden is so big and they, they, they want to overcome all of it at once. But just as the proverbial Rome was not built in a day, neither was this temple built in a day, but they had to start somewhere. They needed to sweep the floor before they could lay the foundation stone. Well, you know, whatever it is, they had to start small and then just work day by day. So 
we've been talking about Ezra in conjunction with Haggai, and you actually have a scripture in Ezra that kind of goes along with what we've just read happens in Haggai, right? Yeah, would you mind reading Ezra 5, verses 1 and 2? It really ties in to, to this idea. Sure. Ezra 5, 1 and 2 says, Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, oh, there he is, Haggai, in the book of Ezra. Um, let's see. Haggai and Zechariah, the, sons of, the son of Edo, prophets prophesied to the Jews who were in Jerusalem. And, man, let me just start over. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophets prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of of the God of Israel, who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. What this really tells me is that all it takes to make change is one good person in the words of God. You know, this entire remnant of people was down and out, but all it took was one man willing to give God's message to the people to get them started on track. I think so often we forget just how powerful God's word is. In Hebrews 4 and 12, it says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know, I know for me, sometimes I can get too focused on how good or bad I think I presented a passage or a truth to somebody, but ultimately it's the truth that's going to change an honest mm-hmm. heart. Mm-hmm. You know, all we do as Christians is plant seeds. And even someone as great as the Apostle Paul said that he planted, Apollos watered, but ultimately it was God that gave the increase to his work. Have you read Tactics by Greg Kokel? Are you familiar with that? Um, Tactics. Greg Kokel is a Christian apologist, and, you know, I don't know his faith, so I can't comment on that other than I know he's uh, not a member of the Lord's Church. But Greg Kokel advocates in his book Tactics uh, for ways that we are to share Christ with the lost. And his number one thing is to remember that we are um, gardeners and, or rather, we need more gardeners and less harvesters. And, uh, you know, Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And uh, what, what Greg suggests in that book, I may be butchering it, but what he suggests in that book is that People are, are ready to collect the fruit when the harvest comes. But, like, if the tree was never planted or tended to, how could the fruit possibly be produced? And so kind of going along with this, like, it's our job to plant and water and get the garden to grow so that when the fruit is ready, you know, someone can come along and pluck it off. And, and people are, are ready to pluck, but they, they don't want to put in the work to tend the garden. So that kind of goes along with this Haggai thing about making sure you're doing the work. Yeah, you know, there wouldn't even be a parable of the sower if the person in the beginning hadn't gone out to sow in the first place. <laughs> it wouldn't matter what right. kind of what kind of ground was there if the seeds never made it out the bag. That's a good and point. It's the same way that the gospel can't do its job on the on people's different kinds of hearts if we don't mm-hmm. give it to them. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's Romans 10, Paul says, uh, how, how will they hear without a preacher? Right. And, and we never really know what God's going to do with the seeds that we planted. That sometimes we plant a seed and we might never see that person again, but we don't know what, what God's going to do with that, that truth in their mind. That, that's faith, that I trust that God will do his part and that I will do my part knowing that he will provide the increase. I love that. Um, you make a point that God plus one is always a majority. What, what do you mean by that? So it's kind of cliche to say, but 
you know, we talked about all it takes is one person with God's word to make change. And this is an idea time after time in scripture. You know, God started with one man, Abraham, to start the nation who's going to bring the Savior into the world. God started with one man, Moses, to lead his people out of bondage. God chose Jonah to preach repentance to the Ninevites, Noah to build an ark, and ultimately one, Christ, to save everyone from their sins. Right. right. And I think that presents a challenge for us that what can we do with the word of God? Mm -hmm. And that's what we're going to kind of move into next is this encouragement phase and what we can do. So um, I'm curious about what happens next in the book of Haggai. The Haggai picks up about two months later. And as you read, God stirred up the spirit of the people and they've come together. They've finally been working on the temple. Mm -hmm. But God still seems to know that these people still need some encouragement. Right. And so picking up finally in chapter two, uh, we'll start with verse three through five. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is it not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Now, you're, maybe, maybe break that down for me. I know you talk about how that first temple was so great and there was people who'd seen it. So what's God saying in this section? I think a big thing here is God's acknowledging that the, the temple that they're going to build isn't going to be as good, that God isn't, he's not giving them false expectations. Right. He's not saying, oh, it'll be just as, just as nice. It'll be great. Uh -huh. But he's being real with them. Right. And he's like, he's saying this temple's not going to be as nice, but still be strong and work because I'm going to be with you. Mm -hmm. And so God knows as our heavenly father, when we're down and when we're discouraged. And I think we can take a lot of comfort in that, knowing that God knows what we need. Uh, and so in these couple verses and in the, the verses to come after, there's three specific points of confidence or of, of encouragement. Um, or there's three specific points of encouragement that God hits uh, that I'd love to end our study with. Oh, please, let's begin. Jump in. So the first thing God tells these people is to be strong and work for I am with you. Okay. You know, God's motivation and his comfort, it comes from the, his promise to be there with them, to be their rock and their strength in the moment. God's our shepherd our shelter in the storm, the rock of our salvation. And as he himself put it to Abraham, our shield and exceedingly great reward, mm -hmm. Genesis 15. And so God put an ease to their discouragement by promising his presence. You know, it didn't matter if what they were going to build on the outside wasn't going to be as grandiose or nice as Solomon's temple, that God doesn't compare us to others. He just wants our best. And I think the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 shows that better than any, anywhere else, that we're expected to do the best with what we've been given. There is a contemporary religious song called Praise You in This Storm. I don't know if you've oh, heard yeah, it. Oh, yeah, I think, so. I think and, I heard that. And it goes along with this idea that, that he's going to be there in the moment and that he doesn't take away the storm, but he will be with you through the storm. And I think it's, uh, I think we could find comfort in both the times that Jesus was in the middle of the storm with his disciples. He didn't, he didn't like shoo the clouds away before they came. Like he does calm the storm and he does walk through the storm to get to them on another time. But like they had to go through it and he didn't just protect them from all of life's issues. And so I like what you've brought up here first that, that God would be with them in the moment. 
And so you're suggesting, I think, in uh, Romans 8 that, that this is the same with us and our work with God, our confidence in today? Yeah, definitely. You know, Romans 8, Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Mm-hmm. You know, it's such a simple phrase, but such a strong message. Yeah. These people literally had to deal with government interfering with their service to God and God saying, be strong and work for I'm with you. And that's how much confidence his presence should bring. And then you, you talk about Isaiah 55. This is probably one of my favorite scriptures in all the Bible, but you're suggesting that he doesn't just leave us on our own after giving us that job to do. So like, if I'm feeling overwhelmed with what God has called me to do, how does Isaiah 55 help me maybe appreciate that he's there? So I'll go ahead and just read it. Uh, Isaiah 55, starting in verse 10, says, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. So God's word is not something that's going to come back empty. That when we are doing God's work, he's going to help us and he's going to let his word accomplish what he wants it to do. Yeah. I think PSB listeners are tired of me talking about this verse because I I think I bring it up almost every episode about my word shall not return to me void and the promise that God makes there, that there's so much comfort in it. And so this this is helpful for me that somebody else is bringing it here and I'm not (laughs) the only one that's using Isaiah 55 in that way, that I can trust that God will do his part, even if I don't understand it, right? So it's like you keep doing it because God's promised it's not going to return void. I like that. Now, God isn't only with them in the moment, right? From the scriptures, you're, you're su- suggesting that there's more encouragement than just in the moment. Yeah, so God could have just left it there with the promise of I'm with you, work. But he gives them a second it's almost subtle when you're just reading it, but he gives them a second kind of mode of encouragement here. He says, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Mm-hmm. The second message that he gives them is to take confidence by looking back. You know, God wanted them to take heart at his faithfulness. They were over a thousand years, like we talked about from the Exodus and all of, all of its miracles and all of the wonders that were going on. But God was still faithful a thousand years later in keeping the covenant. Yeah. He wanted to stress that he was the same God that was with their forefathers. Yeah. And looking back over a thousand years of history would make these people remember that the God that they served and who was promising to be with them was a God of power and strength. Mm-hmm. And so when we're discouraged or dealing with problems, God wants us to look back at all the times he's been faithful to help his followers. You know, we need to look back at the times that God's been there for us in our lives and for our families. And the entire Bible is filled with record after record after record of God being there for his people. Yeah, yeah. You know, in in any relationship, you can talk about in the present, you know, I love you. You know I love you. I'm telling you right now, I love you. But what goes farther is to be able to look back and say, you know I've loved you because fill in the blank. And the testament of your love, you know, let's just say between a husband and wife, the testament of your love is not just in the words, but in the actions that have led to the trust that you're presently dwelling in. And so I, that's, yeah, I think it's such a wonderful connection with God as they can look back over a thousand years. They can see the, the dread or the wrath of God whenever they disobey, like in Deuteronomy 28, uh, some of those um, curses that would come upon them. 
But you know what? In Deuteronomy 28, in those chapters, there's also the blessings. It's not just curses. God is not just a God of jealousy or of wrath. He is a God of patience and love, even in the Old Testament. And so it was saying, like, if you will obey me, here's all of these wonderful things that will happen. So yeah, that looking back would be very helpful. Yeah, God didn't want to punish his people. Right. Like, no parent wants to punish their child. Right. As we look back to the Old Testament, I think it can really help to remember that, you know, we serve the same God who parted the Red Sea for Moses, mm-hmm. the same God who rained fire on Mark Carmel for Elijah, sent the plagues on Egypt, mm-hmm. closed the mouths of lions for Daniel, defeated armies outnumbered by thousands, sent the flood on the earth, raised the dead, healed the sick, and created the universe. Mm-hmm. You know, that same God is with us and is promising to be with us, promising to be with the people of Haggai's day. You know, we can take so much confidence in that by looking back. Yes, we can. Amen. Now, you said in our introduction that you were the son of a marriage and family therapist. Yeah. So I'm in school for that presently, and I've, I've spoken with your dad several times. Um, but you, you have a note in here about CBT, and that is not CBD, <laughs> which is uh, something completely different. <laughs> but tell me about this, this thought you have on cognitive behavioral therapy. As the son of a therapist, you've probably been around this uh, your whole life, right? <laughs> yeah, I may not have always known about it, but it's probably always going on. The older you get, uh, you're thinking, wow, Dad, uh, now I know why you were doing what you were doing all yeah. those years. <laughs> it's pretty crazy when your dad knows what you're going to do before you even do it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it just this kind of struck me yesterday that my, my dad's been teaching me a little bit of his the things that he's learned uh, and just how to help people with their problems and uh-huh. how, to, how to deal with issues. Uh-huh. And it hit me yesterday. That there, there's a, a theory, you know more about it than I do studying it, um, but there's a therapy method called cognitive behavioral therapy. And from my understanding, it deals with a triangle of how your thoughts and your behaviors and your emotions all kind of work together and how you can use your thoughts and your actions to influence um, your, your emotions and how you feel. Right. And I realize this is exactly what God is doing in, in chapter two, that these people emotionally, they're down and out, they're discouraged. And so what God tells them here is he tells them what to focus on and he tells them what to do, that the action, he says, get to work, get busy, do what I'm telling you to do, do what for looking uh, at our perspective, do what God wants you to do. Mm -hmm. And their thoughts are supposed to be on what they're doing and the encouragement of looking back, their thoughts on are on the faithfulness of God and his strength and his power. And so when they're focusing on the God that they serve and how wonderful and awesome he is, and then they're busy doing what God wants them to do, that's going to change their discouragement into encouragement. Yeah. And just going into what CBT is a little bit, um, you know, you can't change how you feel instantly. Like, you know, when you're sad or you're down, the worst thing someone can, or the most unhelpful thing someone can say to you is stop being sad. (laughs) Like, like what are you doing? Stop being depressed. (laughs) That just doesn't work. Right. And so what CBT tries to do from my understanding is it shifts your focus Mm -hmm. and it shifts what you're doing. So if you're sad, you know, think about happy thoughts, think about hope and encouragement and be proactive with your actions. Hang out with happy people, um, read scriptures that bring you hope and encouragement. And so when we're kind of in a slump or a spirit, like a spiritual slump, like these people were, you know, there's ways that we can get out of it. And that's exactly what God is doing here. And I think that's crazy that, you know, a few thousand years ago, God was using cognitive behavioral therapy. <laughs> it's crazy. Well, he is the, the, the master therapist, right? So if the Lord is the great physician, he knew all these things before any of us figured it out. Wonderful counselor. Um, that's right. Ooh, I like that one too. Um, I've always thought... Colossians 3, verse 1 and 2 were two of the best 
examples for mental health and probably fit very well with the cognitive behavioral model, and that is to set your mind on things above and not on things of this world. And so it teaches mindfulness and, and, and where you, you are going to fix cognitively your, how you frame reality. And you're right. So when, when someone has a bad um, memory or they had a bad experience and suddenly that's like influencing their, their thought patterns, their behavior patterns, maybe they're, they're suddenly saying, I'm not good enough or this person doesn't love me. You know, that's a, you have to reframe that and explain that you are good enough or this person does love you, but maybe you're processing what's coming in differently. And so when we set our mind on things above and not on things of this world, um, suddenly we're able to get through tough times, I think with a, a bit more grace and patience. And so that if I feel unworthy, when my mind's set on things above, I can go, you know what? I know I don't deserve X, Y, Z, but God loves me. And so I take satisfaction in knowing that I'm adopted as a child of God. Suddenly, yeah, my thoughts, my behaviors, my emotions, that triangle that you talked about are shifted in a more positive direction or with relationships as well. Let's, let's maybe overview real quick. God has talked about how he's with them in the moment. He's talked with them about looking back. But then also you say uh, that in Haggai chapter 2, that God is encouraging them by saying that he's going to be with them in the future, that they need to look to the future, right? Yeah, and so the, the final thing that God gives them here uh, for their encouragement is prophecies of the future. And, you know, we don't have to go too far into it, into the ins and outs of where the prophecy finds its fulfillment. Uh, you know, I don't claim to know exactly where everything does find its fulfillment. Um, but the main thing that I want to notice is that after promising his presence in the moment, telling him to look back at the past, God lastly tells him to look forward in hope. Mm -hmm. Verses 6 through 9 of chapter 2 and 20 through 23, they give prophecies of the future. They're meant to give these people something to look forward to and to find hope in. And also for those who are going to read after during the time that that it would find its fulfillment. Like I said, I'm not going to pretend to know everything about where all this prophecy finds its fulfillment. But what I do know is that the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, he uses this prophecy of Haggai 2 Mm -hmm. to make a point about God's kingdom, the church. And he quotes part of the prophecy to show that the kingdom that we are receiving right. is one that cannot be shaken. Right. You know, for us today, our hope is in the kingdom because of Jesus Christ. Right. He's the one that was our sacrifice to take away our sins and give us the hope of heaven. And the same writer of Hebrews calls in chapter six, he calls this hope an anchor to the soul. And hope is one of the most powerful things that mankind has ever seen. You know, it started revolutions, changed society, has given people a purpose beyond themselves. And for a Christian, like we talked about, hope is what gets us through everything. Mm -hmm. We endure trials and hardships because we know they don't last forever. We can get through loss and pain because we know there's going to be a time when there is no loss and pain. And we'll get to see everybody uh, who is faithful to the Lord. You know, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 14 is one that I read a lot when when people uh, or when when we're in situations where people have passed away. Uh, Would you mind reading those? Chapter 4, verse 13 through 14. Yeah. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So we have this hope because of what Jesus did. You know, we look forward to the place, heaven, where there is no death or loss. In Revelation 21, verse 4, it really speaks to me. 
Uh, it says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There should be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, specifically that really hits home for me and my family because, you know, we're going through a time of loss and grief right now. Um, but this hope, it just means so much. We've reached the end of the book, so to speak. It's a, a short two chapters. But could you recap for us this the second section? And then I might ask you just for a final word. But what is this chapter two section about? So just overall, I think God's message in Haggai is this, that when you're going through spiritual valleys, you're enduring trials, remember that God is with you in the moment. Look back at his faithfulness and take strength in all that he's done and look to the future in hope. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And take that procrastination and that self-centered priority, get rid of it and get to work. I like that. Very simple uh, lessons. Now, you have some extra notes here on Haggai the man. And so I'm going to tell our listeners that uh, in order to read that, you're going to have to go to the website and look it up on my podcast page. Unfortunately, my track record of actually posting it on the website (laughs) is not the best. And so uh, please reach out, text me, email me. If you go there looking for those extra notes and um, you don't see them, I will do my best to update the website. But uh, let's maybe have a final word. If, if there was anything else you'd want to say or if you had an elevator pitch, you know what that is, the elevator pitch where you, you've got 30 seconds with someone before. If you had 30 seconds to summarize Haggai for someone based on what we've talked about, the whole thing today, what would you tell them? You kind of asked me for one of those uh, last Wednesday. Uh, you know, Haggai is just a book that is people struggling with adjusting to, to life in a godly way and God tells them to, to not procrastinate on what they know is right to do tells them to, to focus on him. And, you know, even when they got to work, God is our heavenly father. He still knew that, that they needed some help. And so the creator of the universe's encouragement to these people is remember everything I've done. I'm with you now and look forward and hope. And that's really the summary of, of the encouragement of this book. Amen. Well, thank you very much for coming in studio today. I appreciate you having me. I've been a, been a listener for a long time. It's kind of surreal to be on it. Well, I want to thank Bryce for coming on. Like he just mentioned, he said he's listened to it for a while and it felt surreal to be in studio. But I think that's what it's all about for me is that this podcast that was intended to help people find Pure and Simple Bible, to connect them with the Bible, to study the Bible in a pure and simple way. And Bryce has done that over the years. He's really uh, been a fan of the podcast. He's encouraged me with it. And uh, I think he's listened to most of the episodes. And so he's kind of grown along with me, and now he gets to be a guest on it. So, Bryce, thank you for coming into the studio and recording with me. I hope that you get the chance to listen to your own. I know a lot of times we don't like listening to our voice, um, but that's something I've had to get over since I've edited all these episodes, and I just hear myself yammering on and on and on again. So I hope that, Bryce, you enjoy listening to it, and everyone, I hope you enjoy the study. I think it's going to be really helpful for you as you get to know the Bible, specifically the book of Haggai and the Old Testament. Now, in addition to this episode, you can go to pureandsimplebible.com, and there's a lot of resources for you to download and use absolutely free. Check it out. And until next week, this is Jonathan Edwards. Always remember, God loves you very much, and I do too. Lord willing, see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true.
about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me and you. Well, his rules in